0: Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. I'm joined here by none other than my buddy, Nick. That's it. What's up? Not much, man. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about... KPIs, Key Performance Indicators, or metrics. I mean, you just hear KPIs in that corporate jargon, but we're going to be talking about metrics of how to measure the performance of real estate. And more specifically, we're going to be talking about our five favorite metrics. But before I get started with that, I want to talk about my favorite metric on measuring the performance of this podcast, which is how many how many reviews Ooh. we have. And I want to say thank you to all the people who have left us a review. If you haven't, we don't hate you, but we will if you don't do it soon. <laughs>
1: That is not a threat. That's a promise. Is that what we're going yeah, with? Yeah, I don't know. But
0: So, what do we got? We got like 100, 100 and some reviews so far, which is awesome. Yeah,
1: I've become obsessed with the stats of the podcast. So, we've got about 120 or 135 star reviews on Spotify and I think 112 on Apple. Someone had the nerve to leave us a one star. That hurts. But hey, whatever. A little constructive criticism. You got to have the haters. I There's guess. probably the guy who road raged me in traffic yesterday. <laughs> Well, yeah, I forgot you got the whole, you got your truck decaled with the podcast, right? (laughs) So today we're going to be talking
0: about the top five return metrics that we use for real estate investment analysis. Very quickly, they are cap rate, cash on cash return, net present value, internal rate of return, and equity multiple. These metrics allow investors to make Quick apples to apples comparisons of the opportunities that they have in front of them. So, you know, really used more for direct comparison of two deals side by side rather than presenting it to investors, which, you know, we'll get to. And some of the returns in here are used a lot in investor pitch decks in the private equity space. But, you know, many investors, and this is a big recommendation of mine, and this is a big thing that, you know, we preach on the podcast is, you know, if you're looking for opportunity, you have to be looking for opportunity, right? You don't just go offer on every deal that you see in the market because it's full of FOMO. You got to be looking at hundreds of deals before investing in a single one, right? That would actually be probably the conversion that I would say. And so, having these metrics and being able to use them and deploy them very quickly and know which, you know, what good categories are, knowing your own investment criteria is a very efficient way for you to scour through deals, right? Like you're on realtor.ca, you see a property, you estimate what you could get in rent for that property, you run a quick cap and you decide you're not going to proceed with it, right? Or you decide you're going to dive in more. So what are we going to look at more specifically about these investments, Nick?
1: Yeah. So what we're going to do with these top five return metrics is we're going to provide you with a definition, provide you with an example, explain how to calculate it, and then we're going to go into the importance as to why it is a good metric to use.
0: Right. And I think it's important to mention again that these are really in a lot of cases, meant to be rough calculations for the purposes of your own internal analysis. The goal here is to be able to efficiently compare a few deals side by side. And my recommendation is find one of these that works for you. You know, there's a couple here that by the time I'm on a computer, if I'm using Excel, I would prefer to use some of the later ones like NPV or IRR because you can calculate them very easily using an Excel formula. But, you know, if I'm just sitting in a restaurant with a client and trying to analyze an investment and I literally need to be doing napkin math, I'm probably going to be using a cap rate, right? Because I don't have the complexity that's available to me on a computer. So understand... totally. Yeah. We just want to give you an idea of where the advantages and disadvantages of each of them are. So Nick, without further ado, do you want to maybe just give us a quick... We're going to start off here with cap rate and cash on cash. And again, these are sort of your napkin math ones, your internal comparison quick and dirties.
1: For sure. So, and then just an FYI, all of this stuff, all of these calculations are available on YouTube, all over the internet. So, I know this is a podcast and you're probably driving or walking or doing something. If you're trying to scribble down the calculations when we're going through them, don't worry about it. This stuff is available everywhere. But let us dive right in. So, Cap rate. We've talked about this one before. The capitalization rate. This is used primarily, it started in the world of commercial real estate to indicate the rate of return that is expected to be generated by the real estate investment property. But it is not just used in commercial real estate anymore. This is probably one of the most common metrics that we see, you know, the retail investors use, right? Dan and I use this all the time. This measure is computed based on the net income which the property is expected to generate and is calculated by dividing the net operating income by the property asset value that is then expressed as a percentage. So it is used to estimate the investor's potential return on their investment in the real estate market. And while cap rates can be useful for quickly comparing the relative value of similar real estate investments in the market, it should not be used as the sole indicator of an investment's strength because it does not take into account leverage, the time value of money, and the future cash flows from property improvements, among a few other factors. Dan, you've got a great example for us here.
0: Yeah, and I think the last piece that you mentioned there about not accounting for time value of money or leverage, like they're not, it's not a levered metric. I think it is a really good side by side comparison metric to look at two deals side by side, but it doesn't account for, Mm -hmm. you know, we can't be pushed into your investor criteria like some of the other ones that we're going to use hereafter. So in my example, this is a deal I did about seven years ago. I actually started by house hacking it. So this is a deal that I did in Newmarket. The metrics aren't exceptionally good, to be honest with you. But I want to talk about them because I think that it's important to analyze your losses probably more than your wins, right? And I just exited Mm -hmm. this one. So four hundred eighty thousand dollars purchase price, seventy k in renovations. So at a twenty percent down, I think I was like almost one hundred fifty k cash into the property. Total cost was five hundred fifty thousand. The cash piece will be important, obviously, in the next metric. Rental income is important here because you need to find your net operating income. So you need to know what the expenses are, and so I'll often use a margin, like just a percentage, right? And I often use thirty percent because I think it overstates the expenses. I'd rather overstate the expenses. Then understate them. So this one's actually a little bit higher than thirty percent because the property taxes are really high in this area. But so on the income side, it's so making twelve hundred a month for the garden suite, which was made through that renovation process, and twenty two hundred in the main house, which is a three bedroom. So thirty four hundred bucks a month. Multiply that by twelve months, you get forty thousand eight hundred a year. The expenses were four grand a year for property tax, give or take. I'm just rounding these numbers out to make it simple for a listening ear. Repairs and maintenance was about four grand and that included snow removal and lawn, and interest on the mortgage. Now, this is an important part because a lot of people don't account for interest on in a mortgage as a clean cost in their cap rate calculation, but it is, right? And so, when you're calculating net operating income, you need to account for that. If you're just like doing, again, doing napkin math and almost trying to create a gross cap rate and not thinking about the interest costs, then I guess that's okay. But I think that if accounting for the interest cost is an important element here. So, just make sure that you're following the same rules. It's like if you're playing a card game with someone and you maybe disagree on the rules or something, as long as you're both playing by the same rules, then... you know. So if you can come to a consensus and say, okay, this is the the rule that we're playing by, then it's a fair game. So if you're taking two properties, if you're going to exclude the interest cost, you have to exclude it on both properties that you're comparing side by side. Make sure you're using the same criteria for the two. Good point. So this brings me to a net operating income of $26,800. And divide it by the $550,000 which I spent on the property. That's the clean purchase price of the property, right? After the the renovations, because I account for that, that's a cost of me making the property what it was today, right? And eventually, my goal in, in this deal was to recapitalize that through cash out refi and eventually a sale. So that brought me to a cap rate of around four point eight seven percent, which, to be honest, is pretty standard. That actually might have been high. That actually might have been a good would have outperformed the market in new market at that time, which was the market
1: that I was in. And now, especially now, probably
0: yeah, for sure, for sure. Now, like in present day, obviously, and the fact that it's appreciated in value, etc. Which is cool because you know it's appreciated in value, and I actually have a you know a terminal sale value because I sold it in fortunately like the peak of the market in, in February, and March of this year. And so I can actually put that in for the other calculations on some of these other returns, which is the NPV and and IRR calculations, which usually you have to because they try and account for the equity that's being paid down. I I don't want to get jump into the other ones. but So in order to do that, you need a terminal value, right? So anyway, how do you calculate this one, Nick?
1: Well, you calculate it by using the NOI divided by the purchase price, which you just did. So I'm just going to give a quick definition of NOI. We've talked about this before, but NOI is net operating income and it's a calculation used to analyze the profitability of an income generating real estate investment. So net operating income equals all revenue from the property minus all reasonably necessary operating expenses. So NOI is a before tax figure appearing on a property's income and cash flow statements that excludes principal and interest payments on loans, capital expenditures, depreciation, and amortization. This metric is used in other industries. You've probably heard EBITDA discussed on the TCI podcast, and that's earnings before interest, taxes, and amortization. So I think that kind of rounds out the cap rate, which is probably the thing that most of our listeners are familiar with. Anything else you want to add to it before we move on, Dan? Yeah,
0: so I guess you know, maybe just for fairness to the definition that we're using there, if I were to calculate mine like if I were to exclude my interest payments, my cap rate would probably be quite a bit juicier.
1: Like so probably jump from like a four eight to maybe even a seven, six and a half or something yeah, like that. Yeah,
0: exactly. So for those of you again, like I think that it is fair as a napkin math metric to not use interest because The mortgage situation can change until the very day of closing, right? And so that's a bit of a Mm -hmm. variable. So, yeah, if you want to like stick to tried and true, exclude mortgage interest from your cap rate calculation, obviously, right? Let's move on here to cash on cash. I think we don't necessarily need to belabor cap rate anymore. So, I mean, cash on cash is a little bit different because it accounts for, like, you're not analyzing the property itself independently, you're more analyzing the money that you put into it, right Nick, so?
1: Right, yeah, so put simply, a cash on cash return measures the annual return that the investor made on the property in relation to the amount of mortgage paid during that same year. Cash on cash return measures the amount of cash flow relative to the amount of cash invested in a property investment and is calculated on a pre-tax basis. So, the cash on cash return metric measures only the return for the current period, typically over one year, rather than the lifetime of that investment or that project. Right.
0: Yeah. And so, in that situation, in this example, I can use the same example. You know, my cash flows were small, right? Because I was paying a lot of interest and I was paying a lot of principal. And so, those aren't things that cash flow. And you'll often get people who will try and use these metrics to account for the equity or the principal pay down that they're getting as cash flow. But that's not free cash flow. That's not money that you can spend, right? You got to wait later to realize that. So from my perspective, one of the easier ways to account for this is you you can do a cash on cash return using a one year. So if I were to do a one year cash on cash return on this property as an example it would be like 1%, right? Because I was making like 2,800 bucks in year one and I just put out 150K, right? So it'd be like a dismal return. But if you, you know, now we don't model deals on a one year point in time basis, right? One year doesn't matter. That's not real estate, yeah. (laughs) And so one of the easy ways, and I want to introduce this concept because it's important for the next metrics that we're going to use for net present value and for internal rate of return. One of the ways to account for, the fact that you're holding this thing over time and that you know the investment needs to be analyzed over an entire hold period is you can include basically a terminal value. So it's sale value. Then you can say, okay, I expect that this market's going to be trading at a five cap in 10 years. And whatever your income is, then you reverse engineer it and create a sale value, a hypothetical sale value. The reason that you do that is so that it captures... What the asset was worth at that period of time and gives you that cash flow back. It gives you that principal back, so that you don't have to model the deal out for a hundred years, right? To get an idea for the perpetuity, the value of those cash flows in perpetuity. So if I were to average out, sort of what that would look like, my cash on cash return would go up to you know like the six, seven, or eight percent. If I'm accounting for selling the property, which I know I sold the property for eight hundred eighty thousand dollars. And I know after paying off the outstanding debt, that that netted me about three hundred and eighty, you know, let's say four hundred grand, right? If that's the position I'm in, I can add that to my the cash flows that I'm using, and over a ten year period, I average that out, and it's going to skew the cash flows up. But the reality is that's cash that's coming out of the property, right? And so it should be accounted for. So. A couple of different things you want to try and account for the way that cash flow changes over time and your cash over cash. So you can do a one year cash over cash return and it's going to suck. And you can say, okay, on year one, I expect to make 1%. But in year two, you're going to make a little bit more because your rents would have gone up at inflation, right? Or because you weren't putting, you know, you didn't have as many expenses. Your cash flow was higher in year two because you didn't have as many expenses. And in year three, you're going to make, you know, maybe a three percent or four percent or a five percent and then you know by year 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 10, in year ten let's say you sell it hypothetically then you make a huge return you average those all out and now all of a sudden you actually have a compelling cash on cash
1: return right so love that yeah we're
0: thinking about it that way as well.
1: yeah, so it's basically you know a fairly simple metric that can provide investors with an easy to understand analysis of a business plan for that specific property and potential cash flow distributions over the lifetime of that investment exactly. Okay, let's keep this party going here. On to the next one. Let's go. NPV or net present value. Now, this is something I wasn't super familiar with. I do I have a little more basic calculations, but again, Dan, coming from a commercial real estate background and working with some high level investors, we thought we'd throw these in two. We're gonna try to make these as easy to understand for everybody listening.
0: Yeah. Before we start, I think one of the important things to mention as well is that the other two metrics that we're using are really valuable for comparing deals against one another, whereas these metrics are more valuable for comparing deals against what other things you could do with your money, right? Because, like, and these are metrics you'll see more used in in private equity and commercial real estate because you need to account for the time value of money, and we can introduce that concept in the explanation here, but. Whereas, you know, cap rate and cash on cash, you're kind of comparing two deals, two properties side by side with NPV and IRR, net present value and internal rate of return. You're comparing a real estate deal to what return you could earn outside of doing this one specific investment. And that's a very important distinction. With that same allotted capital. Exactly.
1: Yeah. No, that's, that's a really important distinction. Thanks for that. Okay, so let's get to the definition of net present value and PV here. So there's a method used to determine the current value of all future cash flows generated by a project or property, including the initial capital investment. It is widely used in capital budgeting to establish which projects are likely to turn the greatest profit. So, one of the most important components of net present value is
0: the discount rate. And basically, this is, you'll often hear the term discounted cash flow. This is where you're basically applying a rate that you would be able to earn money on the investment outside of the property. Let's say, you know, you're an investor, you think you could make 10% year over year, right? You'll model the return as if you have that 10% return as an opportunity cost.
1: Yeah. So that is exactly what individual investors often and should be using as their discount rate, which is the cost of capital. Right. So, and an individual's
0: opportunity cost of capital is the rate of return that can be earned in the marketplace on an investment that has similar size and risk profile. So, there is risk weighting associated with this real estate, not necessarily considered an exceptionally risky investment. So, you know, a lot of people are actually discounting at lower rates, like five, six, seven, eight percent, because some people are saying, oh, it's less risky than you know a GIC, not a GIC, but like you know, it's less risky than Mm -hmm. right certain other low risk categories. So, why don't you give us an example from a time value of money perspective?
1: Yeah. So this isn't necessarily a real estate related example, but this is just a nice, clean, easy example for everyone to understand. So an investor could receive $100 today or a year from now. Now, most investors would not be willing to postpone receiving that $100 today. However, what if an investor could choose to receive $100 today or $105 in one year? that 5% rate of return might be worthwhile if comparable investments of equal risk offered less gain over the same time period. I think that paints a pretty clear picture.
0: Yeah, so if you're calculating your net present value, you you know one of the cool parts is that it accounts for your initial investment, so you know like it, you're almost getting the same advantage of the cash flowiness, right? The cash output. Ooh, cash flowiness. I think that's (laughs) that's (laughs) like a Kanye word. (laughs) You know, it it accounts for the amount of money that you're putting out at the beginning, right? So you'll have a bunch of cells side by side, you know, reading left to right. So like they are in columns here on Excel and the first one will be negative, right? So in my situation, it's minus $150,000 because I put out the down payment plus the you know, $70,000 for renovations here. And then after that, I'll have the cash flow that I have in year number one, in year number two, in year number three, in year number four, all the way to year number 10. Right. And then remember, in year number 10, I put in a terminal value, right? I put in a sale of the property to account for all of that principal that's been captured in years two till 10. Because a lot of people, again, they want to go back to, they're like, oh, the cash on cash return is shit in my asset. So I want to start accounting for that principal. That I'm getting, but principal isn't cash. It's stuck in a property, right? It's equity. And that's where you need to be looking at things like row or, you know, whatever it is, like return on equity or whatever it is. But those aren't, from my perspective, good, clean metrics for real estate. And I think what we want to do here is we want to have good, clean metrics for real estate, right? As soon as you start configuring stuff and you have to explain it to somebody, your investor, your friend, the person you're doing the deal with, your lender, you know, whoever it is, now all of a sudden you've got problems for yourself, right? So, yeah. how do we keep it concise? So it's hard to explain this calculation, like, but it's basically the sum of all future cash flow. So you're adding all of your future cash flows together, but it also accounts for cash outflow. So cash flows can be in or out, right? And in year number one, most likely, unless the asset is an absolute slam dunk deal your cash outflow is gonna be negative. If you're doing a purchase and you have to do a bunch of work to the property, cash outflow could be negative for one year, two year, three year. For development deals, which we use NPV for all the time, you're cash negative for five years and then you get a huge influx of cash in years, maybe let's say five and six from selling all of those units. so
1: Yeah. I think that's a really good example to bring the development aspect into it. I think that clears up any confusion for some people is that it's really just sink your money in and you'll see it a lot more later. And I think that brings us to the time value of money here.
0: Yeah, for sure. And so maybe quickly here, I'll just, before you explain sort of how it accounts for the time value of money, I'm just going to put in. So I enter this in Excel, right? Like I don't hand calculate this. If I can't explain the equation to you in plain language on a podcast, there's no way that I can calculate it up, yeah. on, my, on a napkin, <laughs> right? And so... I'm looking at the equation right now. I wouldn't be able to right, explain this right, in, exactly. in words either. Right, yeah. yeah, And so I just plug in equals NPV in the Excel spreadsheet. And then basically in the brackets, you have to put in your discount rate. So that would be from... In my case, I use 0.1% because I think that you know I could go put my money with like Questrade as an example and get 10% in their managed accounts relatively easily. Maybe not this year, because the stock market's been been pretty brutal, but <laughs> I think on a low risk basis, I can typically achieve that. And so in, in my deal, the cash flows are only like 2,800 a year, and I have that cash outflow of minus 150K in year one. If I account for my IRR in this situation, after recounting, it's like you know a high 20%, right? And it's not uncommon to see IRRs in the 20s, right? And so basically, yeah, sorry, I'm jumping around from NPV to IRR. But so the NPV actually was low. The NPV was not where I wanted it to be. The NPV, I think, based on $446,000. So I technically overpaid for this property ever so slightly, right? By paying $480,000 mm-hmm. for it. So the NPV will give you a clean number, right? It'll give you – the net present value will give you – it'll account for basically – it'll It'll say to you, this is what the property is actually worth, Right. Based on your on your cash flow, and if I, you know, a lot of people will start playing with that number. They'll say, okay, if I discount it at a different rate, now it's worth different. Like, because if you change that discount rate, then all of a sudden the value, the numeric value, because it'll give you a dollar figure value on a NPV net present value calculation in Microsoft Excel, then they'll try and retool it, and now all of a sudden, okay, yeah, this deal makes sense. But it's actually worth playing with that discount rate number in the NPV formula in Excel. So equals NPV. And then you get your parentheses open, you have to put in an interest rate. So 0.1%, let's say, or 0.1, which is 10%. And then you put a comma, and then you select all of the cells that have your future cash flows. And once you start playing with that rate, you'll see, okay, you know, now all of a sudden, if I were to decrease that discount rate to 8% as an example the deal is worth more than the $480,000 that I paid for it. So if as an investor, I could only make 8% return outside of this deal, then it would be compelling for me, right? The net present value would actually be better than what I could do with that cash elsewhere, right? But you know, anything over 10%, it doesn't make sense, right? It makes sense for me to put my, my money into another deal. And that's really the important distinction is, does this make sense for you to put your money into this deal or into other opportunities in the market? And I think that, you know, I use this a lot when comparing rental to ownership, right? Where it's like if you run a net present value on what you could potentially earn on a 20% down payment plus the thousands of dollars in sunk costs that you'd be spending on interest and property maintenance, sometimes you can get a better investment outside of home ownership and that's what I do, right? A lot of people have asked me to talk a lot about that or talk more about that on the podcast but I rent and I invest the difference that I'm talking about in real estate because I know I can get a better net present value on that money. Anyway,
1: I think we killed NPV. Yeah, I just wanted to give one quick kind of takeaway from it. So the time value of money, you know, essentially that just means time value of money is the sum of money is worth more now then the sum of money will be worth in the future. And that is because money can only grow through investing. So an investment delayed is an opportunity lost. I think that probably wraps that one up. Move on to IRR or the internal rate of return. So the IRR is a metric used in financial analysis to estimate the profitability of potential investments IRR is a discount rate that makes the net present value, the NPV, which we just talked about, of all cash flows equal to zero in a discounted cash flow analysis. Dan, shed some light on that for us.
0: Yeah. So basically, when I mentioned that the NPV will spit out a numerical value or a value that the property is worth, you know, based on its net present value calculation, if all you're doing is you're taking that value and you're setting it to zero, right? And then what it'll do is it'll tell you what the return on the property was if the value of that property was set to zero. So functionally, it's accounting for the annual return that makes the net present value equal to zero and it spits out that return. To you. So it tells you the performance of an asset on its own, right? Independent, but it also accounts for that discounting. So, relative to that 10% discounting rate that we're mentioning, it'll say, you know, based on that, based on that calculation, if you were to put your money into this asset rather than anything else, it would return you a 22% IRR as an example. Because you're hearing like a lot of guys are delivering. A lot of developers and investors in the private equity space like to use the IRR because it's a juicy sounding return, right? Like you're often seeing 15 to 25 internal rate of returns in pitch decks, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, who doesn't want to see that, those those double digits? So yeah, I mean, in in general, when comparing investment options with other similar characteristics, the investment with the highest RR would probably be considered the best. That's pretty obvious. The IRR is a metric, I guess, used in uh, financial analysis, used for analyzing capital budgeting projects to understand and compare the potential rates and annual return over time of those specific capital project. So can we give an example as to how this would work for a duplex? Yeah. So one of the
0: nice parts about the IRR is that in the way that we just described it, you know, yeah, you're talking about capital budgeting and purchasing the property, but you can also account for things like CapEx, right? Capital expenditure as an example. So Mm -hmm. internal rate of return and net present value, both they account for a year's worth of cash flows, again, cash outflows and cash inflows. So a lot of these things, you know, when you purchase the property, that's a cash outflow to the whole value of that property, right? And then if you spend money on renovating that property in the next year, as an example, it'll account for that. Or you know, if you do this over 10 years and maybe after five years, you have a tenant turnover and you have to redo the suite completely, you can account for that negative value as well as the positive value. Whereas you know your cash on cash return kind of accounts for that when it talks about your cash outflows, but only in one single year, unless again, you're blending it out over an entire Multitude of years and creating an average cash on cash return over a 10 year period. Whereas, you know, these net present value and IRR calculations account for the cash flows over that full 10 year period. So I know a lot of investors who are actually, they have churn rates as an example of like how often their tenants are turning over. They have turnover rates and when a suite comes up they know okay you know one in five suites i'm going to have to renovate completely right and they'll factor into that cost they know you know and this is obviously on a building that has 100 units or something like that right where knowing metrics like this matter or spreading that across an entire portfolio but once you get an understanding okay now yeah i'm going to get five suites back per year one of them is going to be bad i'm going to have to spend you know 10 20 30 grand on that suite you're account for that outflow in the calculation and so The popular scenario is comparing the profitability of establishing this new asset by comparison to expanding or spending more money on capital expenditure in an existing asset, right? Oh yeah, okay. So it's do you want to buy something? Does it make more sense to allocate that expense to purchasing a new asset, or does it make more sense to spend money on something that you already have? As an example, right?
1: Right. So I've got a hundred thousand dollars. Do I go buy another duplex, or do I turn the existing duplex I have into a triplex?
0: Right, right. And yeah. And so you could run an IRR because, like, a lot of people will be like, "Oh, you know, I'm going to build a garden suite, and it's going to cost me two hundred grand, and I'm going to rent it out for." 1500 or 2000 bucks a month. I mean, we were out with an investor the other day who was doing these numbers in in their head or the the guest that was joining us. And it's like, well, you know, you can't really necessarily use a clean, just cap calculation on like I'm adding a garden Mm -hmm. suite because it doesn't really account for the purchase of the property plus the addition of the suite, right? So that's sort of where you would lean on using something that accounts for everything under the umbrella rather than, you know, just one little component. I want to also mention, you know, one of the advantages to using NPV and IRR is again that terminal value where you're selling the property and realizing the equity that you have in it. Because a lot of people will try to account for the equity piece of what they're making as income, right? Like when your principal is getting paid down, you want to think about it as income. And a lot of people in Canada, our properties cash flow really poorly, so. You know, people are really just trying to rationalize, trying to make the return sound better because everything's such a bad return in more of the bigger areas in in the <laughs> country, right? And in, in the GTN, yeah. that's changing now as prices are going down and rents are going up. But if you're not accounting for the mortgage interest in a cap rate, you can't really account for the mortgage principal as if you're not accounting for the interest as an expense, you can't really account for the principal as income, right? Whereas these things eventually realize those costs. They realize all of the interest costs during the cash flow out, but they also realize all of the equity costs on the cash flow back in when you sell the property. And you don't have to sell the property to make that return, just you need to hypothetically sell the property and say this is what it's going to be worth in 10 years just so you don't have to again model it out for 20 years in a spreadsheet. I think you and I maybe would love to do like some courses on these like eventually make videos, Of us like, yeah, like some, I don't know, like a video companion for those who actually want to learn. Like I modeled the deal that I, I used as an example in like five minutes, maybe not five, but like 15 minutes before this episode just to have some metrics to illustrate it would be really cool to do a video component. So if you're know if you listening and you're interested and you want to get a video component and you already want Nick and I to kind of do something on like calculating these returns in a spreadsheet, we'd be happy to do it. Just let us know. We want to make sure, just gauge interest. So maybe just send us an email or message us on one of our platforms.
1: Yeah. Great
0: call. Let's get to the equity multiple in accounting for pulling that equity out, right?
1: Yeah. So before we do, I just want to do a quick recap of everything we've done so far because this has been a pretty meaty episode here and it might be new to a lot of people. So we've discussed cap rates, which probably most people are familiar with, cash on cash return, another great metric, NPV, which is net present value, IRR, which is internal rate of return. And the fifth and final, certainly not last but not least, is the equity multiple. We as real estate investors, I think all love this word equity because this is the name of the game here. So, the equity multiple is commonly used in commercial real estate yet again, and it's not widely understood in let's say the retail investment, small cap investment community. The equity multiple is defined as the total cash distributions received from an investment divided by the total equity invested. So, Dan, why don't you give us a quick run through on how to calculate something like this because it's actually realistically one of the easier looking calculations anyway. Yeah, for sure. I
0: mean, it's very clean and simple, right? It's the amount of equity that you put in. So, the amount of cash that you put into the deal at the beginning, your equity in the deal. And it measures basically the change in that. So, you know, you'll hear often 2X equity multiple. So, you doubled your equity as an example. If you anything less than 1X, you lost money. So, if you did a 1.5X, you made 50% return, right? And actually, one of the big crowdfunding platforms in the US is actually called Equity Multiple, I believe. And so it's a really popular metric, right? Because a lot of people just want to know, okay, I'm putting like in a lot of the crowdfunding smaller private equity stuff where basically investors don't want to know about... The sophisticated cash flows. They don't want to care about discounting. They don't want to care about, you know, they don't want somebody who's pitching them a deal to say, you know, yeah, well, the deal makes sense if you are an investor who makes 10% in the stock market, right? They want to know how much money am I putting in? Because there's a lockout period, right? You're going to likely be in this deal for five years. So if it's a development deal, which is where this is more commonly used. So, okay, I'm getting into this deal for five years. I'm putting in $100,000. How much money am I getting out? How much money do I have at the end? Right? Are you giving me $250,000? Okay, I have a two and a half equity multiple, right? 2.5x. And so it's a really easy, concise way to tell people, okay, you're giving us this much money. We're going to give you this much money back, right? And it's probably more commonly used for that. It's like basically a more simplified, almost retail style way to pitch a development deal to somebody. And it's basically, the equity that you put in, total cash distributions over the equity that you put into the deal. So, the cash that you get out of the deal at the end divided by the cash that you put into the deal at the beginning, right?
1: Yeah. We like simple stuff over here to be honest. If you can figure out that the deal is good and simply you know, on that napkin math, these other metrics are probably going to make a lot more sense. So, That's it, folks. We've gone through them all, all five of them. If there's anything that we missed that you want to hear us analyze, shoot us an email or, or, or DM one of us. You know, I guess my closing remarks again on cap rate, cash on cash, net present value, internal rate of return and equity multiple. If you're a newer investor or someone that's looking for equity partners, financing partners, this is the kind of stuff you should be spending your time doing, right? Literally figure out these equations, go on realtor.ca, pull properties and start running them, right? This is the kind of stuff where we talk about knowledge is power, especially in a bear market. If you can know these things, find properties and apply these metrics to those properties, I can almost guarantee you, you will not have a problem finding financing partners. Yeah, for
0: sure. I would say that, you know, The other piece is a lot of people might ask us to provide different metrics that they prefer, but like the reality is, I would say these five are the industry standard for how a deal is going to be presented. Learn these well, learn how to analyze deals using these exceptionally well. And this is a, a new language for you, right? There are, as an example, like for cap rate, if actually cap rate and IRR, like if you're looking for an easy way to calculate these things, I would say there are tools available. Like one of the ones that we're likely going to start using for our deal of the day segment is Landlord.io. So you can go to. We actually have an affiliate link for Landlord. So Landlord.io slash crei. So for Canadian real estate investor, has to be lowercase for some reason. So Landlord.io, <laughs> and that's Landlord, like lending. Pretty cool name, actually. But lending and lording, yeah, yeah. Landlord. It's good. Landlord.io slash crei, and basically you can they have a deal analyzer tool where you can literally just plug in the metrics. So you can plug in the income, you can put in an expense margin. So I would say again, like 30% or it'll it'll put basically boilerplate ones in there for you, industry standard ones in there for you. And it'll spit out a cap rate. And you can literally do this for hundreds of deals. You can actually compare deals side by side within the platform, right? A couple of these tools that are available, like they do have a paid membership. So The ones that I think Deal Analyzer is free for anyone, but there's a couple of other tools like actually managing your portfolio and stuff that are available on Landlord. So I would recommend using the link that we provided just because it does actually give you access to some of the paid tools for free. And check it out. Like just plug in a couple of deals and and just look at random deals on realtor.ca send us deals on realtor.ca cuz we love looking at deals like i literally look at thousands <laughs> of real estate deals a week no joke like i actually do for clients for myself just for fun like i love this stuff so send them to me and just you know send me a screenshot of the returns that you calculated and let me know your thoughts on a deal let me know like even even cooler if it's a deal you're actually considering buying right like that's the stuff that we love for we sure. want to we, we want to have conversations with real real estate investors who are using the skill sets that we're teaching to make good informed real estate investment decisions, so.
1: Yeah, I'm super excited about this partnership. I just went and input my portfolio in and man, it was cool. Like, I mean, I had it done all on spreadsheet, my net worth on a separate spreadsheet and all that kind of stuff. And this just paints a super clear. They got such a great dashboard. It's it's a great user experience. And if you don't have a portfolio, just do what Dan said, you know, have fun with it. Go start analyzing properties, man. Before I had my first property, again, the thousands of properties analyzed and you don't need a real estate agent, you don't need a mortgage agent, you don't need anything. You literally just need a computer, Wi-Fi, realtor.ca and the means to find these equations and start popping the numbers in. So it is a great place to start. And honestly, like you don't
0: need – like I I know this stuff because I did an undergrad in real estate and I did a post-grad in in property valuation. So – and I actually was on the faculty. I taught this stuff to real estate students at
1: the University of Guelph. So you were like that that good looking teacher that everyone was like, oh my gosh, what's he, was, what's he doing?
0: <laughs> yeah, probably not that. No, I was marking people. I don't think I'd, I didn't do any seminars, but that was my TA work was mostly marking. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you really don't need to know all of this stuff in excruciating detail, like we just described it. You don't need to know, like it's worth understanding, right? At a high level, understand the stuff from 30,000 feet, know how to use it well, right? You don't need to know the inner, workings of it. It's worth like, we went through those things to give you that understanding. But you need to know what the function of the best application of an IRR versus an NPV is. You need to know that an IRR is basically an an NPV, a net present value, as if the net present value, that numeric number value, the dollar figure that it gives you is equal to zero. Then it gives you a return, Mm -hmm. right? It's basically converting an NPV, a net present value into a return, rate of return, right? A percentage. You know, you need to know that a cap rate is good for comparing properties side by side. And you need to know that cash on cash is basically trying to account for it's more of a cash flow investor metric, right?
1: Yeah. I think that's probably the biggest takeaway from this episode is that there are a lot of different ways to analyze a lot of different deals. So, start to figure out which ones apply to which and start to figure out which ones you like and start to figure out which ones your JV partners, your private lenders and any other people that you're working with like to see as well. Anyways, that's it for today, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. You got any questions for Dan or myself or you want to leave us a review right into the show, find all that in the show notes. I'm going to be putting the Len Lord hyperlink in the show as well and feel free to use it. Talk soon.
0: The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Centre, license number 10317 and a partner in g Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037.
1: Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.